Welcome to Know Your Risk Radio on 97.3 Cairo FM and AM 770 KTTH. Know Your Risk Radio is hosted by Zach Abraham, Chief Investment Officer at Bulwark Capital. Whether it's preservation of capital or an aggressive growth strategy, every investor needs a clearly defined risk profile. Know Your Risk Radio is brought to you by Bulwark Capital, helping families navigate the ever-changing and often volatile markets. Know Your Risk Radio starts now. Here's your host, Zach Abraham. And we are back. Thank you so much for joining us for yet another of the most scintillating hours in finance radio. And boy, do we have a lot to cover. A lot going on this week. We had the Fed decision. We have some earnings out. None of note. Um, One that caught my attention was Restoration Hardware. Uh, sales were down dramatically year over year, 16%. Now that's just one retailer. Um, It's just interesting, the things that are moving and the things that aren't. For instance, home building stocks are on fire, making new all-time highs. Um, (laughs) If you want to ask why, I don't know. Um, I I have never seen a market... You know, usually... And this is why I said it's interesting. Is it frustrating at times? Yes, because there's a lot of nonsensical things going on, and we'll get to that. I also, in the market up to date, want to talk about fraud alert. I, I, I really think we have identified a fraud, uh, an out and out fraudulent stock. Um, and I want to almost follow that like the daily dots. A. Because if we're wrong and it's not fraud, it's probably one of the most incredible companies I've ever seen, especially when you consider the the, the sector it's in. Uh, B, I think that you can learn a lot. If we are correct and it is fraudulent, I think you can learn a lot from watching it closely and, and studying it and – you know, look at the mistakes investors are making because the stock is a magnet for retail investors. Everybody I've talked to smart institutionally thinks it's an out and out fraud. Um, and when you look at the numbers, it's just really hard not to come to that conclusion. Anyway, we'll get to that in a little bit. But let's talk about the big deal that's going on. First of all, let's address the indices. The indices are teasing us. The Dow broke out to a new all-time high. Um, despite lower earnings, lower revenues, and interest rates going up substantially, but such is the market we live in, right? Um, There's the old adage, you don't get to trade the market you want, you get to trade the market you have. Um, But I I also see the Dow uh, as a complete non sequitur, and I will continue to say, like I've been saying for the last two years, um, when we're watching for market indications and we're watching about where things are going, um, you need to be looking at the NASDAQ. People are like, no, it's just, you know what, I, I, I'll continue to have this argument with people and I've got no problem having this argument. Um, what drives the S&P are the top companies in the NASDAQ. So why are we watching a derivative of the NASDAQ? Now, should the NASDAQ do that? No, it's not a good proxy for the entire it's, – it's too slim, right? It doesn't have enough parts of the economy into it. It's way too tech concentrated. But that's the only index people want to be in. It's the only kind of stocks people want to own. And they're also the biggest companies. And and to be fair, they're also the best and most profitable companies too. So as the NASDAQ goes, it will lead everything. For instance, if the NASDAQ is down, you you can see a scenario where the NASDAQ is up 15% and the S&P is flat. As a matter of fact, that probably happened at some point or, or close to that at some point this year. You will not see the inverse take place. There just isn't enough market cap waiting on the other side. If those top stocks go down, to, they're, they're, they're going to act like a, a – you know. They're going to act like concrete galoshes on the rest of the index, right? Um, now, the, the S&P can certainly do better. It did last year, but it was still down, right? Um, so the NASDAQ continues to be the game for us, and it is teasing breakout territory. Um, why are we talking technicals, right? We talk about risk management. We talk about valuations being so important and, and you know, Paying attention to these things, but also focusing on fundamentals. Why do we do it? Because this market isn't driven by fundamentals, right? And when it's not driven by fundamentals, technicals are, you know, really kind of the only thing you can really go off of. Um, now, does that mean we're going to be market timing and trying? No, but just in terms of getting a feel for, you know, what the economy is doing, what the market's doing, 
you know, you get to the, when you're sitting there watching companies whose revenues and earnings are going down, interest rates are going up in a slowing economy and their stock moonshots by 50% a year, you got to acknowledge to yourself, right, that you're not in a fundamentally driven market. And one of the tools you use to kind of wander your way through that darkness when you're, when you're, when you've got a market that clearly is moving in opposite directions of fundamentals is there's one of two things. When you see that happen, there's one of two things. A, the market is looking ahead and it's telling you that they expect these bad times to not last and that company's going to really reaccelerate and Katie bar the door, here we come again. Or B, the market's off sides. Um, now you can kind of have it somewhere in the middle, you know, where, you know, there's none of these rules are concrete. They're markets, obviously. But, you know, w- when you're looking at moves like that, at some point, you're going to have to get really good news to bolster, right? A, a move like that for a company is not going to hold up unless the good news comes, right? Um, because that's effectively what the market's telling you. Um, there's a lot of that out there. What's interesting is there's a lot of euphoria built around next year still. Meanwhile, like we were telling you six months ago when you were looking at 15% earnings increase estimates for the S&P 500 next year, we were like, Look, you can never say it's impossible, but that seems like child's. That, that seems ridiculous. That seems like a child fairy tale. Th- these earnings expectations continue to come down, right? So they're coming more in line with us. Um, and what's interesting is that the market has rallied the hardest as earnings expectations have come down, and, and that's why I'm just saying, like, you just have to adjust to the fact that this is not a. It's not a fundamentally driven market. Doesn't mean there aren't things of good value. Doesn't mean there aren't things of horrible value, right? It's it, it's comprised of all different kind of components, but uh, you know, it is what it is. Now, what is really interesting, and when we say that this is an expensive market, you know, I, you guys have heard me say that for a long time, and while we still had zero percent interest rates, there, you know, prior to COVID, I was talking about how expensive the market was all the time, but there was always this caveat in zero percent interest rate. You know, don't don't bet against it because in zero percent interest rate environments, there really isn't much of a limitation on values. Now, what's interesting is obviously we're not at zero percent rates anymore, and something fascinating has has occurred just recently. Uh, I'm not exactly sure precisely when it happened at some point in the last couple months, but it was probably actually November, I would think. But something occurred in markets that has only happened one other time in the last 40 years. Now, I think it's happened other times in the bigger past, but for completely different non, non-connected reasons. What's interesting? Now, let's, let's think about this. And this is something that you all know, and I just want you to understand this. When we talk about asset prices being expensive or cheap, like I've always said to you, normally, normally speaking, that is a subjective conversation, right? Expensive or cheap compared to what? Expensive or cheap compared to bonds? Expensive or cheap compared to real estate, expensive or cheap compared to other stocks in their sector. What do do we mean by that? Every once in a while, you get get unequivocal signs of things being expensive and things being crazy expensive. Every once in a while, irrefutable signs. Now, it doesn't mean, just full caveat here, if things get ridiculously expensive, it doesn't mean that they have to crash. But if they don't, it's usually because them getting very expensive was foretelling of really good things to come, right? Think of NVIDIA, right? Now, NVIDIA is – now, I've still beat it up for being crazy expensive. It is. It's insane. And it's not insane based off – I want to clarify something really quick. It's not insane based off the results they have. I think that the results they've had this year – and I just want to be really clear because I've laughed at it, but but I – kind of realized I you know what I should I should probably I should probably add some nuance to that statement. And even Nvidia has admitted this. Everybody is acting as if trading the stock. They're acting as if this is a new trajectory for Nvidia. 
Okay. Is it a new business line? Is it a new vertical they're going to sell into? Absolutely. Are they going to make a lot of money doing it? Absolutely. Are they, is, is, is the rampant revenue and profit you've seen, is this a new business? No. No, this is a gold rush at the beginning of a move. Now, do I expect their revenues and their profits to be meaningfully higher going forward? Of course. Yes. Yes. But you're what the mistake I think people are making is they're watching this initial land grab, right? Think of the Oklahoma land rush. This A new technology like AI comes to the fore and there's a land rush, right? And what do you need? You got to buy horse. I think the Oklahoma land rush is a perfect example, right? If you were a horse dealer back then, business was great the six months leading up to that. Okay, but you made a mistake if you thought that the demand for horses and wagons was going to continue to climb at that level even after the land rush was over. The same is true in any technological advancement, AI, anything like that. That initial run in, right, isn't going to, right, it's going to settle down and it'll settle down considerably. Even, like I said, even NVIDIA has said that. So when I say it's ridiculously expensive, I think the mistake investors are making, I don't think that that business is about to fold up or their AI chips aren't going to be a hit or anything like that. It's just I think people are sitting there looking at, you know, what will probably end up being a one, one and a half, maybe two year kind of gold rush. And well, even NVIDIA said that the pace of sales will not sustain like this by the even by the end of next year. Um. So anyway, but talking, so, so I want to be clear when things get really expensive, it can be the foretelling of great things ahead, or it's just things being overpriced. And the interesting thing that happened recently, now remember we've talked to, I've talked to you guys a lot about needing to think about stocks as companies as opposed to stocks. Right? And I think it's the easiest way, especially in crazy times, crazy valuations, crazy moves. I think one of the easiest times is take your eyes off of the charts, quit thinking about how high or low it could go, and analyze the business. Because at the end of the day, that's what you're buying. Right. So what is that thing that occurred? Well, we all know the Fed funds rate. Right, That is the base interest rate that the Federal Reserve pays to member banks. So JP Morgan has to keep a certain amount of bank reserves at the Fed. The Fed funds rate is the amount of interest that the Fed pays on those reserves. And that is like, think of, if you look, if you think of interest rates and bonds as a house, the Fed funds rate is the foundation and everything is priced accordingly to that, right? And so that's kind of our base, right? That's the base cost of money, if you will. Now, it corresponds strongly to to treasuries being issued by the government, right? So right now, even though rates have pulled back, which we've been telling you they would, regardless of, you know, what economic outlook you were looking at. And by the way, I don't know if you guys are keeping an eye on bonds, but I think our two-year treasury, our two-year treasury holdings are up like 5%. Remember, on top of the 5% interest we're being paid a year, the actual value of the bonds is up 5% in the last two days. And this is another point I was telling you. Hey, guy, everybody's fired up about stocks trading at 26 times earnings and on most metrics, the most expensive stock market in U.S. history. And I'm getting to this detail about this thing that happened recently that is another sign of it being the most expensive in U.S. history. Look at the movement in stocks the last couple of days. It's been trounced by bonds. This is my point. And I'm not saying it's going to continue. I'm not saying two-year treasuries are going to continue to rally like this every single day. They won't. But on a risk-reward basis... Now I'm getting 5% and if rates continue, you know, I, it's like I've been pounding the table on this saying, hey guys, whether you believe a recession is going to happen or a soft landing is going to happen, rates have to go lower in either case. And when you look at the bloodletting that's been in bonds the last year and the fact that you were getting 45 to 5% risk-free, very attractive. So this gets me to my point about what happened recently that's, that to me is undeniable proof of the excess in these markets. What has happened is the earnings yield on the S&P 500. Now, when you hear the term earnings yield, Again, everybody knows what it, think of profit. Okay. It's just profit earnings yield. How, what the earnings yield is, if I buy this company at X price, 
as an owner of the company, I get paid by profit, right? Not revenue. I get paid by profit. So what is my, if I buy that business, what is as a percentage, what is my profit going to be flowing to me off of that business? If I buy a million dollar company and it makes $75,000 in profit, the earnings yield on that company is 7.5%. Okay. So we can look at that as a whole market as well. And that's something we track. And the, one of the reasons we track it is because it's a metric of looking at how expensive or cheap the market is. So for instance, if the market had an earnings yield of 10, well, hold on, I digress. So bear with me. Because remember everything, when we're looking at valuations, it's always subjective. As of today, the earnings yield on the S&P 500 is 394 or the lowest it has been in, I want to say 15 years. Don't quote me on that. It might even be longer. So what that tells you is buying the S&P right now, looking at the amount of profit coming off of it, it is historically very low. You're not getting paid much to buy the market, right? No, you look where market valuation, that's not a big surprise. Here's the interesting thing. The Fed funds rates at five and a half. Now, remember, we all know this. Why do we buy bonds and CDs? We don't buy them because we think they're going to outperform the stock market and make us the most money. We buy them because they're safe. And we will willingly say, you know, you can make 15% a year in the stock market. Well, yeah, but I can also lose 50. You know what? I'm good. I'll take the bond or the CD for 5% because I don't have to worry about it, right? So safety. And that's the way things work, right? I will take less money. I will take less pay for safety. Now, why do we still own stocks? Because we expect them to pay us more over time, right? They're going to deliver higher, but we're also going to take on more volatility and risk. Well, when you have the S&P earnings yield at 3.9 and you have the Fed funds rate at 5.5 and you can buy two and five year treasuries trading, they've pulled back a little bit, but trading at say four and a half to 5%. What you're doing when you're actively buying stocks is you are saying, I would at present, now maybe earnings are about ready to ramp. One of the reasons we don't think that's the case is you're already coming off record earnings and record margins. And in a blow off top way where conditions were perfect, where consumers were cashed up, rates were at zero, you couldn't do anything other than buy stuff from your, right? I mean, in terms of profitability, it was almost the most perfect environment you could possibly have. And so to expect earnings acceleration when all of those factors are away, I'm not saying it has to go in the tank. I, I just think you're asking a lot, right, for earnings to accelerate because none of those perfect conditions are in place anymore. So what you're doing when you're buying stocks when the S&P earnings yield is at 3.9 and the Fed funds rates at five and a half is you, whether you know it or not, what you are saying is I would prefer to get paid less while taking more risk, right? Take a company like Microsoft. It's earnings yield, I think is around 1.9, 2% now. And maybe you're like, man, AI, you know, is going to double Amazon or Microsoft's profits in the next five years. Well, if you think that best of luck to you. Okay, Amazon does 27 billion in profit. If you took all of Nvidia's profit, all of it, right? The biggest chunk coming from AI chips. If you took all of their profit and added it to uh, uh, Microsoft right now, you'd be looking at a uh, what would that be? You'd be looking about a thirty-eight to forty percent increase in profit. So if you think AI is going to double their profit in the next five years, Not saying it's impossible, but I'd say it's pretty close, okay? But even if it did, if you're buying it at a 2% earnings yield, when you can buy a 4.5% to 5% U.S. government bond, even after their profit doubles, it's still paying you less than you're making from a zero-risk U.S. government bond. And that's that's where we're sitting right here today. And look, it hasn't been fun this year. It's been fun the last couple of days. It hasn't been fun this year. But that's why we're sitting there looking at the bond market going, you guys are piling in. You, why are you guys all so much excited to take stock risk to make less money than, well, market's going up? Look, yes, but, but what do we all know? The markets can go way too low, way too high. They eventually gravitate back to cash flows. 
right? So this is why we're saying there's so much short-term thinking. We got to think long-term, be intelligent investors. You know, for years and years and years, all we heard about is, oh man, we're not getting paid anything on our money. We finally get up to 5%. Nobody wants it. Why? Because they're preoccupied with stocks. Now, remember when I said this is the last, so, so, how rare is that where the earnings yield on the S&P gets substantively lower than the Fed funds rate? Like I said, it's only happened one time in the last 40 years. We didn't look further than that just because I don't really think it's helpful. I, you know, it, it could have happened at some point in the Great Depression, but it was uh, somewhat of an anomaly. It could have happened during World War II. But right it, when you get into those areas, there's so many other cross currents that have to do with those, those conditions that I, don't, I just don't think it's a good comp for here. But in the last 40 years, the last time that happened, the last time the earnings yield was substantively lower than the Fed funds rate, 98, top of the tech bubble. What happened to the NASDAQ over the next three to four years? Lost 85%. Now, to be clear, one of the most confident takes I have, period, is that the NASDAQ's not going to drop 85% again. Okay, I'm not, I'm not saying that. Why? Because it's not led by dollar and a dream companies. It's led by the most profitable companies in history now, right? So the conditions are very different. Could it drop 50? Absolutely. Am I predicting that? No. I'm just saying when you're that expensive, look at, and here's why I say it could drop 50. Look at Apple, for instance. Apple's right now trading at 33 times earnings. Okay. Apple isn't growing. Tim Cook has admitted that. Could Apple get back to the same price-to-earnings ratio it averaged over its entire rise over the last 15 years, 16, 17 times earnings? Yeah. Now, was Apple too cheap then? Yes. That that was one of the weird things about that whole move up is even though Apple was the most popular stock, it was always valued too cheap. It didn't make any sense when you looked at its margins, revenue growth, profit growth. But now it's on the other side of it. The earnings have stopped and the – or excuse me, the growth has stopped and the multiples doubled. So could a stock like Apple lose 40 or 50%? Yes, it could. I mean, I'd probably be buying it then. But it just, that that is to me an unequivocal picture of, now listen, again, this doesn't make, there are no certainties in finance. So it doesn't mean a year from now, stock investors might be looking at us and saying, see, that's why we stayed with stocks. My point in bringing this up is, if you, And we talked about this in the Daily Dots this week. By betting on stocks when the earnings yield is lower than the treasury, you may be right. You may end up being right. Here's what I'm here to tell you. If you continue to make decisions based like that, you will get drilled. It's only a matter of time. And if you make decisions like that, right, that are not financially based, that are based on things that you cannot see in investing, not only will you get drilled, you're going to get killed. It's only a matter of time. Just, just. Just hold on, right? And the reason I'm jumping all over this one thing is because, like I said, valuations are subjective. And then all of a sudden you get these things that occur and you go, okay, that's no longer subjective. That is an objective fact. To call this market nosebleed expensive right now, that is, uh, that is not subjective. It is objective on historical standards, on traditional standards, all that other kind of stuff. And it's not even so much the level of the price earnings, it's the relationship it has with interest rates. Now, I've gone a little bit long. We still need to tie up the rest of the market updates. We're going to take a quick break here. Call 866-779-RISK. Again, 866-779-RISK. Stick with us through the break. We'll be right back. You're listening to the Know Your Risk Radio podcast. Download and subscribe at knowyourriskradio.com. This is Know Your Risk Radio with Zach Abraham. Listen to Zach uncover the truth about the financial markets with simple and honest advice to help you plan for retirement. Get your free copy of Zach's new booklet, Common Sense Investing. Go to knowyourriskradio.com. How many times in recent memory has your financial advisor not reacted to current events and also not made a change in your investment portfolio? Now, think about all the volatile events during that time that have threatened your retirement. That's Zach Abraham, Chief Investment Officer at Bulwark Capital and host of the Know Your Risk Radio podcast. Todd, we talk about it all the time, risk management. It's our number one focus. We actively manage every portfolio daily, looking for opportunities to lower risk, lower cost, and give you as much upside as possible. 
Let us show you how Bulwark's risk management strategy can protect that retirement you've worked so hard for. This is exactly why you need Zach and Bulwark Capital in your corner. You only get one retirement. Learn how Bulwark does it with their free common sense investing guide. Call 866-779-RISK or simply go to knowyourriskradio.com. That's 866-779-RISK or go to knowyourriskradio.com. Investment advisory services offered through Tech Financial LLC and SEC Registered Investment Advisor. You're listening to Know Your Risk Radio with Zach Abraham, Chief Investment Officer at Bulwark Capital Management. And we are back. Thank you so much for sticking with us. Okay, so so to, to tie that up, and it, when we start talking about valuations and fundamentals, if you, can, you can't tell, I get a little ginned up and I get a little sidetracked. So we'll try to make this simple. But the point that I want to bring to you, and, and I think that you see it illustrated, and again, I'm using this as a microcosm. It's just a couple days. When things get that extended to price, okay, in a situation like that where you have a a decidedly slowing economy, and we'll get into the Fed minutes next, but nobody would argue, right? It's one of the reasons that well, – we'll get into the Fed decision, but it's one of the reasons that the Fed basically came out and said no more rate hikes and plans for three rate cuts in the next year. Why are they saying that? Because the data is slowing down. Right now, people would be like, well, it's inflation coming down. Well, yeah, but the Fed is also if you look at their growth forecast, they're forecasting like one point two percent growth next year. Yeah, that's that's a big step back. OK, so. That you're, you're like, that's that is a slowdown right now. You know what doesn't usually happen with an economy growing at one point two percent? You don't typically have blowout earnings. And that's what this market is priced in. And the other thing about it is you don't value, like I said, value is so subjective. You so rarely have these moments where you're like, at least to me, where you're going, okay, this really takes the decision out of my hands. I got to own this asset class and not that one. That's just too ridiculous. If you're going to give me no risk and a 25% greater earnings yield or a 30% greater earnings yield, with zero risk, as opposed to taking stock market risk, macroeconomic risk, geopolitical risk, currency risk, interest rate risk, all that kind of stuff to make less. It doesn't guarantee that I'm going to be right. But eight and a half times out of 10, I will be. Right. And what is the biggest thing about risk management? What do I preach all the time? It's avoiding the big losses, making that other decision it doesn't guarantee that I'm going to be right. Okay, but taking the other decision, buying a market with a 3.9% earnings yield and, you know, thumbing your nose at a 45 to 5% risk-free rate, that is how you lose a lot of money, right? That's how you lose a lot of money. Now, what's the upside? Like I was saying, everybody's, oh, the stock market loved the Fed minutes yesterday and, oh, it's exciting. The market's up one and a half, one, one, one percent since the Fed meeting. Our short-term, short-term government bonds are up five. There's just so much more juice on that side of the trade. And the thing I love about it is whether you go into recession or whether you get a soft landing, both require lower rates. Will stocks go up in either case? I mean, I don't think they'll go up in a recession, but I don't know. What about a soft landing? I don't think they'd go up, but I don't know. But in either case, both are going to require lower rates, right? Will bonds go up with rates lower? 100%. They have to, right? And, and guys, this is another example of risk management. And all too often in investing, people are like, yeah, but is that going to be the best investment? Once again, if you're out there shopping for the best investment, right? If you're trying to get it perfect, if you're trying to thread the needle, you need to also understand the fact that you're opening yourself up to bigger loss, and what do we talk all the time about? The easiest way to ins- to increase long-term performance is to limit loss. And I just don't think people also understand how much juice there is. We have a um, – remember I was telling you guys about that REIT that we purchased for our client accounts? And I mean, look, it, it didn't do any – well, we only purchased it about a month and a half ago. But it hadn't done anything all year. And again, I don't want you guys to sit there. I'm not going to sit here and do a victory lap because we're up 5% since the Fed cut or anything like that. But Or, or in certain things. I think our portfolios are up 3.5%, percent 3.5%, 3.5%, 4% in the last couple of days. Um, so it's not 5 But really solid, maybe 3%. No, so we were up like almost 2 yesterday in va- our value portfolio. 
We're up one and a half today. Yeah, so three, yeah, just over 3% in the last couple of days. But but I tell you that not to brag because we've underperformed all year. I've told you, <laughs> I've been very honest and very clear about that. Um, but here's my point is, is if you're buying stocks because rates are going to go down, I, you already got paid for that. Right, you, 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 that's what that run up in November was all about. People getting all excited about the Fed having to, you know, because remember what we were saying, the good news is bad news because when the bad news and the bad data starts rolling in, the market goes over closer to rate cuts. And you just look at the risk reward setup of bonds versus stocks right now. And I just, it, it's a hard one for me to wrap my head around. I think people are resistant to it because they got killed in bonds last year. We did not. Because uh, we didn't have any exposure, we haven't had any exposure to bonds for the last decade. Um, but man, right now, pretty crazy. So let's move on. Fed minutes. Fed came out, talked, not minutes, but the the announcement, uh, the interest rate decision. They didn't raise for the third meeting in a row, and they forecasted three rate cuts next year. Um, I would say it's an interesting decision on on several fronts. First. Like we've been telling you, the data is pointed downward. And if you don't believe me, the only reason the Fed basically came out yesterday and said no more hikes on the table, we're going to cut, right? That's like a that's like a cut light to the Fed, right? They've admit, they, they have said that using words, talking is part of monetary policy. So if they can get if they can get the reactions they're looking from the market and the economy by talking and not actually changing interest rates, they'll do that. So first, they're usually going to telegraph it orally, right? And then after they've done that, they'll make their move. So the Fed is clearly signaling or, or admitting that the economic weakness is coming in, just like we've been telling you. The other interesting thing, though, was the timing. I, I, I was a bit shocked by what the Fed said. I was shocked isn't the right word. I was a little surprised by the dovishness, meaning how much they were talking about cutting rates, how much they were backing off the interest rate hikes. And the reason I was – the reason that was a bit surprising to me is the inflation number has come down, but – the majority of that coming down is oil going from you know night, low 90s to mid to high 60s. That is a huge feed-in to CPI. Now, people are like, they don't calculate oil in CPI. No, they do. They, calcu- they don't calculate oil and housing in PCE. I think, they, I think they calculate – no, no. They do calculate housing, energy. Well, anyway, PCE is what the Fed follows. That doesn't consider – you know spot interest rate or excuse me not spot uh uh, energy prices so but here's the deal when you look at how much financial conditions have loosened and when i say loosened mortgages topped out at eight 30 year money's now back to 6.3 i mean that quick okay um they're talking interest rate hikes. Interest rates are coming down. 10-year bond has gone from yielding five down to like 4.1, 4.12, right? Treasury didn't issue as nearly as many bonds on the long end. All of these different factors are in play. And I think the Fed is way too preemptively declaring bankruptcy or, or victory here. And it, it, it's surprising to me because what they're risking right now is a reacceleration in inflation. especially when you look at the move down in mortgages and look at oil. Oil was up 6% just since they cut yesterday or since they said they were going to cut. So why would they do that? People are like, well, inflation's coming down. Yeah, but that's the whole point, right? They're going to do the same thing on the fight that they did on the way up. Oh, deny inflation's a problem, deny inflation's a problem, and then address it when it's out of control. Now I think they're pulling off. I I think they should cut. I don't think rates should have ever gotten this high because I think they should have focused on the liquidity side of it more, you know, selling down their balance sheet, things of that nature. But, right, because there's kind of two ways you can tighten an economy if you're the Federal Reserve. You can raise interest rates or you can sell the things that you've bought. And that has kind of a downward pressure 
on interest rates why, or, or, or on, on the economy, on asset prices. Why was I in favor of them doing that? Because who owns all the assets? Rich people. They've made plenty of money, right? Hit the asset prices. Don't hit the interest rates, that, right? If you're a billionaire, whether a car loan is 0% or 10% doesn't matter to you. Interest rates really don't matter other than the way it impacts your asset prices. Who do they matter to a lot? The middle class. And once again, Fed policy focused on interest rates, which were punitive to the middle class and did nothing to the wealthy, except bolster their, you know, well, the rising interest rates didn't bolster their asset prices. But what I'm saying is rising interest rates hit asset prices last year, not this year. This year, the market loved rising interest rates. But what I'm saying is the path the Fed chose was explicitly punitive on middle, you know, the lower end, the lower half of the economy and really wasn't that restrictive to the upper half. So, I mean, I just, people want to know why I ran on the fed. It's just because it's amazing to me how their monetary policy decisions always come at the cost of the middle class and the lower, the lower half of the, of the scale. I don't think it's their intention. I don't think that that's what they're sitting back trying to do. I think it's a knock on effect of their, uh, extraordinarily incomplete, academically based view of finance and the economy. But but the other reason why I think they did it, and I cannot prove this, and and I'm just saying that because there there especially as it relates to housing, there's still a lot of pent up demand. Oil production is good, but it's not. You know, we don't have a glut in oil. If they let off the gas too soon, I don't think these animal spirits have been put out. And I think you can prove that by looking at the performance of things like ARK and the NASDAQ and Bitcoin and all that kind of stuff. If they take the restrictor plate off, this thing just starts ramping hot again. So why would they risk that? The only reason I think they'd risk that, if if you slid this back a year. So let's say everything was a year in reverse, you know, they w- was a year back, right? So, so. 2021 would have been the year where the market was down 21%. NASDAQ was down 32. And then 2022 would have been this year, right? So let's say we had the exact same economic setup last year at this time, 12 months ago, as we do today. I don't think the Fed would have forecasted that. Why? Because there isn't an election happening in 2023. That's just a personal opinion of mine. And and the reason I say it is just it was a bit of a head scratcher. They went from talking about rates still on one of two things from re, look, listening to that minute the other day. Either Powell is seeing worse uh, data than we're seeing, which he's got the ability to do that. Either they're more concerned than even I am, especially in the short term, or they're going to try to th- keep things as loose and accommodative as possible. They're going to try to thread the needle and have their cake and eat it too, which is they're going to try to keep inflation under control, but they're also going to try to buoy asset prices and keep the economy rolling. You know, they're really going to try to thread that needle through the election next year. People are like, well, what do you mean? Um, the Fed isn't political. Come on. Come on. And then when you look at their ties to academia, I don't think it's so much that they're in the tank for Biden. But I do think that they think it is their duty to defend, quote unquote, democracy and keep Trump out of office. I do think and, – and I could be 100 percent wrong on this, you guys. But it was such an about face. And usually when the Fed is going to make that turn, right, go from cutting – or go from you know raising to cutting or cutting to raising. Usually it's a gradual, right? They really forecast it. They're really laying. People are like, oh, they didn't cut. And I'm like, yeah, but they said three cuts. And they basically said no more hikes, right? Which is like a mini cut. Just look at the impact it's having on bonds, right? So first you tell of the cut. And I, what I'm saying is that preemptive cut, if you really want to make sure inflation's behind you, you haven't hit your target rate of 2% yet. Now you're getting closer, but you still haven't hit it. It's just not consistent with everything they've said. And like I said, I, I still, you look at retail sales, they came in, they weren't hot, but they're a little better than expected. They weren't, they weren't caving in yet. And that's with all of these pressures on the economy. You take those pressures off and it just kind of, here it goes again. So 
This is going to be fascinating to watch. This is yet another reason why I'm loving the bond exposure right now. Because now, look, I it doesn't mean it's a guaranteed winner, but there's so the market is so expensive on every different metric you look at. The economy is clearly slowing, which the Fed I think backed that up yesterday, right? Talking rate cuts. It's not just Zach saying it now. Now Jerome Powell agrees too. And that's what they needed it to do. And now I kind of think on the other side of it, they're risking the same thing. We'll have to see the way this plays out. But here's here's the opportunity. I, Based on the easing of financial conditions, based on where how much oil has come down, based on bond yields pulling back, based on mortgages coming back from eight to six and a half, I would expect now to hold on. I'm not reversing myself here, but I, I will be, I am expecting to see economic data pick up a pretty decent amount over the next month or two. That would be my base case, just looking at the data. Okay. And that doesn't mean a recession's off the table by any stretch of the imagination, but that I would expect to see a pickup in data. Here's where I think this period of time is very helpful. If you don't see a pickup in data, Based on this pullback in yields, get out of the way. It's coming. If you don't see a pickup in economic data, it's because we've already entered a recession. Might be at the very beginning of it, which I kind of think we are now. But now after yesterday and looking at how much financial conditions have loosened and looking at how much mortgage rates have come back, I'm kind of sitting there going, you know, I would have thought the interest, the, the recession would have started in the first quarter of this year. My personal belief is you got to push it back now, at least to the second quarter. Based off now, like I said, what will be interesting is to see the way the data really rolls out. Because if you don't get a bump in the data, then you're going down, baby. Then I think I think the recession is officially started if you don't see a bounce in the data. And that's why I was saying I think we're going to get some very good market information coming off the heels of that presser by the Fed yesterday. In the next 30 to 45 days. And truthfully, I think the next 30 to 45 days will tell us, is the recession on? Or is it maybe not going to happen or at least happen later than we think? I think we're going to get that answer in the next 30 to 45 days. So uh, now the fraud alert that I was telling you about, and I want to get this one on quick because I've gone over shocking. Fraud alert. When you look at the economy right now, and whether you're looking at it doesn't really matter where you're looking. One of the places that is currently getting hit the hardest for obvious reasons are automobiles, car dealerships. Now, if you haven't noticed, one of the best performing stocks in the entire marketplace is Carvana, okay? The online used car dealership. Uh, earlier this year, they were drowning in debt. They were able to sell a pile of stock to pay that debt down a lot. But remember, they had to sell a bunch of stock, so it diluted existing shareholders. So if you owned a pile of Carvana stock, you may own the same number of shares now, but it is a, it is a considerably smaller percentage ownership in the company because they had to sell all that stuff. Now, it's one of the best performing stocks in the entire market. It, I, I think it bottomed at three and it's at 55 now, just this year. Okay, I think the thing's a total fraud. Okay, first of all, the people that run it, people that are on the board, are there. there is at least one ex-con, very shady backgrounds, Guys known to be scammers, okay, and, and they're in management. I'm not making that accusation to any one individual. I don't want to be sued for, you know, defamation or anything like that. Um, but here's the deal. Their revenue keeps going down, and yet their profit is going through the roof. They did $2.7 billion in revenue reportedly this last quarter, and they generated $750 million in profit. For a 28% net margin, which means their gross margins have to be net margin, meaning after everything's said and done, how much did they make on things they sold, used cars and, and warranties and things like that. But right, the used cars are going to be the biggest driver. And they're saying that they made $750 million. That would mean that their business of every, of every dollar that they take in in revenue, 28% is profit. 
Guys, there isn't a car dealership in the world that has those margins. Okay. Especially go pull up a chart for what used car prices are doing. To believe that they are at 28% gross margins, you got to believe a couple things. A, you have to believe that they're basically buying cars at 20 to 30% discounts of value from people because they're used cars, right? So they're getting cars 20 to 30% below market and they're able to sell them above. The other thing that you'd have to believe is that every stinking car they sell, they are loading to the gunnels with warranties and service packages. And all. You know why that's hard to believe? Because nobody can afford a car payment at these interest rates. I, I will apologize profusely if I am wrong about this, but this isn't some complicated uh, software company. This isn't even Tesla. Right, Tesla, you could see, you know, I had concerns that Tesla might be fraudulent, but it was basically, and there were times where I washed back and forth on this show going, you know what, I don't think it's a fraud. I just think it's overvalued. I think Musk's reckless. Then I'd come back and say, you know what, I do think it's a fraud. This is a completely different ballgame. There is either something incredible happening at this company or it's a fraud. It really is that simple. The other thing that we're sitting there looking at it today, looking at the earnings report going, how do you get there? Are they listing the sale of equity as, as, as revenue? I don't know how they're how the accounting works, but I'm just telling you firsthand experience, car dealerships are struggling. Used cars the worst. Because remember, used cars are especially exposed to financing because you don't get as good a rates on used cars because it's considered riskier collateral, right? It's not it's not worth as much. And these guys would have you believe that they are generating 28% net margins in one of the worst automobile markets since the Great Recession. And you can actually, I think it's actually, I don't think it's worse right now than the bottom of the Great Recession, but like that's the next best comp. Okay. Car dealerships are going out of business, not, not in mass, but there are car dealerships going out of business right now. And these guys are cranking out 28% net margins. And here's the other thing. They got piles of debt still, more so than any other car dealership. And it, this isn't one of those things attacking them because they're doing good. I'm just telling you, I've, I've never sat there and looked at a situation where you go, look, those numbers are amazing if they're correct. I, I just can't even model it. I don't even know how you're po- – I, I just think about what that takes. Remember, net margin is after everything. So that's why I was saying to post a 28% net margin, I don't know this for a fact – but it's got to be somewhere in here. You got to be looking at 40% gross margins, right? You got to pay debt servicing costs. They have a pile of debt. You got to pay employees. You got, I mean, bills, electricity, insurance, flooring costs. I mean, you got to do all that. I, this is either the greatest car dealership in the kit. People are like, well, they save money. No, they don't guys. At the end of the day, they buy cars and they sell them. That's what they do. And remember buying cars. It's why it's so funny. Everybody's like, they're a tech company. no, the reason tech is so profitable is because once you create software, you can distribute it through the internet instantly at every corner of the world. And it doesn't cost anything. You send it via email, send it via update over the air, all that kind of stuff. Whether you're selling cars online or at a, or, or at a brick and mortar location, you still got to buy the car. You still got to move it to somewhere. You still got to sit it on a physical lot. It's not even a comp. It's a ridiculous comparison. Now, do they have a wider marketing funnel? Sure. Does that trans, I mean, you know, what is it? What does the average car dealership make overall? You know, a good car dealership make, including service and everything, eight, 9% margins. These guys are saying they're at 28 and a half. And, and their profit is mooning while their revenue is falling. And why is that a signal? What have we talked about? Revenue is much harder to fake. Profit is much easier to fake. Now, the only thing that gives me pause is that this is the, this is how crazy it is. It's so egregious. Uh, part of me sits there and thinks if they are fraudulent, you'd think they'd do it in a less flamboyant way. 
But, you know, some of my best contacts in finance, the guys I had from the big short, had them on. They said the same thing. They said, this thing's a fraud. So anyway, bottom line, I've gone way over in this segment. Guys, at the end of the day, and we got a great uh, interview coming up, or we're going to post this weekend with Trevor Hall, a mining expert. If you haven't noticed, gold and silver are ripping. We're going to have a discussion with him about gold and silver, so you're going to want to get that. And as always, guys, if these things concern you, if you're looking at the earnings yield of the S&P being below and how to play that, should you buy twos and fives? How do we risk? How do we guard ourselves against risk? How do we play a coming recession, even though, right, all that stuff? Risk management, guys. Risk management and clear, precise thinking, active management, hedging, risk management. It's all right there. Should you be interested? You should be. And like I was saying on the Todd Herman show the other day, guys, if you're going to call us or somebody else, you've ridden the longest, biggest bull market in U.S. history. Okay, now is the time to instill risk management. Don't ask us to manage and mitigate your risk after you lose 30%. Give us a call, 866-779-RISK. Again, 866-779-RISK. Go to the radio show website, knowyourriskradio.com, boardcapitalmanagement.com. You guys know the drill. Do not miss our interview coming out with Trevor Hall. He's going to give us an update on the mining sector, metals, precious metals, all that kind of stuff, highly valuable. Gotta go. We will see you next week. You're listening to Know Your Risk Radio. Download and subscribe at knowyourriskradio.com. Thanks for listening to Know Your Risk Radio with Zach Abraham, Chief Investment Officer at Bulwark Capital. Whether it's preservation of capital or an aggressive growth strategy, every investor needs a clearly defined risk profile. Schedule your free risk review with Zach Abraham now at knowyourriskradio.com. Zach will be back with more Know Your Risk Radio next Saturday at noon on 97.3 Cairo FM and AM 770 KTTH. The opinions expressed in this program are for general informational purposes only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual or on any specific security. It is only intended to provide education about the financial industry. To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, consult your financial advisor prior to investing. Any past performance discussed during this program is no guarantee of future results. Any indices referenced for comparison are unmanaged and cannot be invested into directly. As always, please remember investing involves risk and possible loss of principal capital. Please seek advice from a licensed professional. Investment advice cannot be given without a client service agreement. Bulwark Capital Management is an investment advisor representative of Trek Financial, LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor. How many times in recent memory has your financial advisor not reacted to current events and also not made a change in your investment portfolio? Now, think about all the volatile events during that time that have threatened your retirement. That's Zach Abraham, Chief Investment Officer at Bulwark Capital and host of the Know Your Risk Radio podcast. Todd, we talk about it all the time, risk management. It's our number one focus. We actively manage every portfolio daily, looking for opportunities to lower risk, lower cost, and give you as much upside as possible. Let us show you how Bulwark's risk management strategy can protect that retirement you've worked so hard for. This is exactly why you need Zach and Bulwark Capital in your corner. You only get one retirement. Learn how Bulwark does it with their free common sense investing guide. Call 866-779-RISK or simply go to knowyourriskradio.com. That's 866-779-RISK or go to knowyourriskradio.com. Investment advisory services offered through Tech Financial LLC and SEC Registered Investment Advisor.